Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Hopeless Romantic. Uh, This is a special episode prompted by one of our Patreon benefactors. Our patrons. Our patrons, if you will. (laughs) You did that to me one time, so I'm doing it to you. Uh, As always, I'm Austin Chant. I am Amanda Jean. God damn it. I'm sorry for interrupting you. I was going to say like, and this is, and I don't know why I felt the need to do that. It's fine. I appreciate it. Here she is. I hear a kitty in the background of your recording. Is that is Thor in the hallway crying? <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's, it's okay, because yesterday I was trying to record a thing, and there was a flock of crows just sort of screaming at the top of their lungs overhead, so that could happen. We've just got a lot of atmospheric animals. All right, well, if he, if he keeps up a racket, I'll go out there and tell him not to. Amanda, this is our second episode since we no longer live together, and it's weird we always recorded in different rooms, so at least we're, like, technologically prepped, but... Actually, the first uh, first episode or two... I think at least the first episode we did not film in, in separate rooms. And then we learned that that was a mistake. That was a mistake. That's how you get your audio hecked up. Uh, our episode with Nicole Kimberling, I was in the living room, uh, well, the dining room, and you were in your room where you always recorded, and Nicole and I had to share a microphone, and god damn it, Thor! <laughs> There's also a dog barking in the background of my recording, so maybe we should just surrender to our... <laughs> I'm gonna go soothe Thor, because that worked last time, I'll be right back. So yeah, anyway, Amanda's uh, new roommate has two cats, and I'm fucking so jealous. I'm so jealous and bitter. I don't have a cat. I've been trying to make friends with all the neighborhood cats, um, but so far only one of them has come and hung out with me. Um, He was a really playful, sweet black cat, and I really liked him. But the other cats have just looked at me from a distance. I did meet an old golden retriever, and that was nice, but I don't have a cat, and I want to have a cat, and that's my story. Somewhere out there... Beyond my hearing, Amanda is playing with a cat. I went out there and he screamed at me and then I picked him up. I held him like a little baby and I kissed him and he started purring because I thought I would just annoy him. So I was like, and he was just like, purr, happy, happy, settles. And I was like, oh, uh, this wasn't what I, uh." what a weirdo. I know. He was so happy. He was like curling his little claws on my shoulder. Oh, I know. A baby. 18 pound baby. (laughs) Good lord. <laughs> he's a big boy. He's one of the he's not like the biggest cat I've ever seen by any means, but he's a he's a big sturdy boy. You couldn't couldn't knock that boy over with a pail of water to close <laughs> as I do daily. Yep. Um so where were we? Uh, Nicole Kimberling and I sharing a microphone. It was uh look, uh I did not know Nicole Kimberling super well. Uh I had met her at GRNW, which is now Read with Pride a couple of times. She's very kind and cool. And uh, <laughs> sharing a microphone with someone is one of the most awkward things you can do with another human. Especially because we were both kind of at an angle to it. So at one point, I realized that I had my hand on Nicole Kimberling's chair kind of awkwardly just in her physical space. Like a dude at a movie theater just like trying to make. It was a, worse. An embrace happening. It was worse than that. It was so much worse. I'm so sorry, Nicole Kimberling. You're lovely. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, 
I tr kept trying not to do that after that. But just the, the awkwardness of having to shove two people at a microphone at once is just never do it. Get two mics. I have a I have a spare mic in case anyone records over here. I don't know why they would because I record at my desk. Today's episode was prompted by one of our $10 Patreon subscribers. Amanda, you have the prompt to read. Yeah, it's from Silas, who asks, um, please talk about books slash media slash stories that have fed your creative brain. You know what I mean? Stories that make you want to write or that you came out of full of ideas of your own writing. For your own writing, yeah. I'm good at reading. This was such a fun prompt. Thank you. I was really excited as soon as I saw this one. Not only do we get to talk about things that we love and that inspire us, I mean, ostensibly, there's also times when I've been motivated by garbage. Um <laughs> Not only that, but uh, we love talking about ourselves, so... Yeah. And also, yes, we're both machines fueled by spite. I One of the things that I realized uh, as soon as I started thinking about this was I went to my favorite self... My favorite self. <laughs> my favorite self! <laughs> my favorites shelf on Goodreads. I realized that the thing that makes a book a favorite for me versus just a good book that I enjoyed is that quality of this has fed my creative brain and it makes me want to do stuff. Because those are the books where I'm like, I need to read this again. I need to recommend this to other people. I need other people to read this so they will understand what's going on in my brain when I want to create something. That kind of thing. It's very convenient also because I can just scroll down my favorites shelf on Goodreads and pretty much all of these are, yeah. Give me some examples. Can do that. One of the things that I think is interesting is that I have almost none of those books in my genre. Almost everything is at least kind of a step removed from the stuff that I write because I, I think I get really inspired by the idea of um, taking elements from other genres into mine. I mean, I consider myself both a romance writer and a fantasy writer, but a lot of my favorite works are pure fantasy, are not romance. Um, and a lot of stuff that... Uh, falls into that category for me is also not queer necessarily. Plenty of it is, but a lot of it isn't. I think I'm often inspired by stuff that is very interesting to me, but is also removed from my community in ways that I think would be interesting to bridge. Some of the books on this list are Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Jurassic Park is also my favorite movie, but I also really enjoyed the book, and The Lost World is also really, really, really good. It's unlike the film. Unlike the film, the book is extremely good. Features uh, Ian Malcolm's girlfriend riding on a motorcycle and beating up velociraptors, and it's really great. <laughs> it's a it's a thriller, sci-fi thriller, um, which is not a genre I will probably, I'm probably jinxing it, but I will probably never write a sci-fi thriller. It's not really my field. I don't even really read sci-fi thrillers. I have a lot of works by Dynamo Jones, who's my favorite author who informs a lot of how I write, and Ray Bradbury, who is another one of those authors for me. I have Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> uh, A Movable Feast, A Movable Feast specifically. I haven't actually read any of his other works in full. I find him more tolerable when he's writing nonfiction because it kind of makes it at least apparent that he's a jackass. See, <laughs> it's kind of like there on the surface instead of you just having to be like, kind of seems like this guy's an asshole. I have The Hunger Games. I'm unlikely to ever write YA dystopia. Jane Austen, Isaac Asimov, Oscar Wilde. Oh, Oscar. I have a lot of Oscar. Oscar. I have his uh, um, complete works, but they also include a lot of his letters, including the, like, I think it was 15 or 20,000 word letter he wrote his lover, uh, Bozy, after he was let out of 
jail, which I still to this day swear to God is pronounced Gale. Gale. <laughs> <laughs> Can't see it without going Gale. Gale. <laughs> anyway. I always was like Gowl. Yeah. <laughs> Gowl. Clearly something that isn't just jail. Someone had to tell me that before I realized it. This is yeah. the peril of being a kid who read a lot. People don't tend to tell you that Gale is spelled, it's pronounced jail. The most recent additions to this shelf are the Captive Prince series by C.S. Picat, The Secret Casebook of Simon Faximal by K.J. Charles. So those are the, the romance representatives on this list. Lost Boy by Sassafras Lowry. Uh, Nevada by Imogen Binney. Um, the Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, which I am currently obsessed with, and The Book of Salt by Monique Trong. Oh yeah, you love The Book of Salt. I love The Book of Salt. <laughs> um, <laughs> and of those, only the K.J. Charles and C.S. Picat are queer romance, and Captive Prince is sort of like queer romance adjacent. Yeah, it's in the umbrella of it just by default because it doesn't really fit any other genre perfectly. Yeah. Um, and it is queer and it has romance in it. Yeah, I feel like Captive Prince is sort of a in an interesting different genre that has grown out of both queer romance, but also like fandom writing in a big way. I realized that at, right after saying that a lot of mine aren't queer, that the last all of the ones from the last like three years are all queer on my list, with the possible exception of The Sparrow, which has a gay character in it, but is I would not call a queer book. Let's see. I'm trying. I'm sort of still trying to categorize them. Or break them down. I think one of the things that always really gets me is when authors do a deep dive into like a particular style that might be nothing that I want to pursue to that degree, but that their their mastery of it is just so evident. That's the case with like Nevada by Imogen Binney, which is a, a contemporary novel, a literary novel about a trans woman that is written in this really interesting, uh, omnipotent POV stream of consciousness way um which normally are words that would make me be like get me out please i have a really low tolerance for literary writing that doesn't feel very intentional and well crafted to me for the most part i'm just bored and put off and alienated by it but nevada is so readable it's so smart and it uses that format to dig at a lot of really deep, interesting realities of trans lives that I've never seen written about anywhere else and get at them in this really conversational way that makes them land. And it's the kind of book where you're reading it along and you can read really, really quickly, but then a, a, a sentence will just jump out and punch you in the face and you'll have to stop and be like, whoa, I'm being called out for my whole life <laughs> right now. you saying that while you were in the process of reading it, you're just like, this book, it's calling me out. It's like, oh. yeah, yeah. Like one of the th bits I remember from the end, and I'm not going to, I'm going to paraphrase badly because I'm not Imogen Binney and also haven't read it super recently. There's a bit at the end that's about how when you are trans, you spend so often, you, you spend so much time fighting to convince other people that what you know about yourself is true and fighting to be like, yes, I know what I am and I know what I want, that it makes you struggle to be flexible and actually figure out what you want in other aspects of your life or even in regards to transness because you have to be on the defensive so much. And I was just like, <laughs> Lies down on a fainting couch. <laughs> Drape self. And another another book that I admire in that way is The Book of Salt, which 
is a really awesome uh, literary novel, historical fiction, a semi-fictionalized, well, very fictionalized account of a, a queer Vietnamese man who is based on Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas's chef. Um, but it's a heavily fictionalized account in large part because we don't know a whole lot from them that isn't from their very, very Western, very racist lens of him. And it's one of the most like incredibly stylized books I've ever read. The main character is a chef and it's told in first person and he copes with life and thinks through everything through metaphors of food, really deep luscious metaphors of food and the writing is just like the most sensual delicious prose i have ever read it's so extreme and it works really really well it gets you into the mind of the character in this incredibly deep way because it not only tells you like what he is thinking but exactly how he thinks it and how he processes everything in his life especially because he's dealing with really, really deep prejudices and also language barriers. So a lot of how he communicates is through food metaphors and through cooking. It's so good. I remember I I read this for a class and I remember getting really, really angry because other people didn't like it as much as I did. They didn't get it. I usually I'm never that person, but I got so angry. I was just like, you don't understand how good this book is don't appreciate it i wonder um how many times uh any sort of literature teacher has that experience until they're just burned from the uh inside out and husk like and no longer Uh, care if people appreciate great literature (laughs) yeah i i literally want to just like quote like 10 pages from that book i won't though maybe some other time uh i suppose i will i will go a little bit um, I noted that I included a lot more um, media outside of books than Austin did. And I think that's partially because just how I'm wired. And also, Austin, you don't watch a ton of media. You don't watch a ton of movies. No. And you, I can count on, like, uh, when was the last time you watched a TV show? I watch more TV than I do movies, but it's it's rare, all told. Probably play video games as my second highest media consumption. But I've I've only played Overwatch and uh, oh god, what's the name of the game? Um, Spry Fox, uh, Road Not Taken. I have only played Overwatch and Road Not Taken for the last I don't know almost twelve months. So really, <laughs> it's books. <laughs> I I don't tend to read a lot of fiction in my um personal time i used to read a lot more but since i changed careers and read for a living i it takes um a lot to make me want to read like for leisure some of what i read is just essays and collections i don't really have a particular genre like i really like history and i really like true crime (laughs) (laughs) i really like true crime a lot but i don't tend to read as much of it anymore mostly because most uh most of it's like sensationalist exploitative shit and or i am becoming more sensitive with age and start to get really sad like for example my um favorite history writer is sarah val 
who I absolutely adore. And one of the reasons I really like her is she reminds me that your voice, both your <laughs> literal and your metaphorical writer's voice is so important. And you have to work on honing that because no one can sound like you. That's why I love her so much because all of her history is through her very particular lens. And she's very funny and weird. Uh, I'm sure if you've heard of Sarah Val, you probably know that she has a very interesting speaking voice. Um, she actually did the voice of Violet in um, the Incredibles. She uh, is an NPR contributor and does her own audiobook, so I urge you all to check those out. My favorite is Assassination Vacation, but I also like uh, Wordy Shipmates. So... Uh, I like her for voice stuff. I also really like uh, Raymond Chandler, who wrote the Philip Marlowe books. My friend introduced me to Chandler, and Marlowe is really important. Um, I realize it's an obvious choice, but the writing is so crisp and interesting that I forget that I'm reading something that at this point is a cliche. Uh, it's really good. And his essays are particularly wonderful. Whenever I feel, I don't know, whenever I feel like I need to cut through some bullshit in writing um, in terms of like, I see a lot of the same stories or I feel like I do and they're all kind of aimed at people who just want copies of the same thing. I reread his uh, essay, The Simple Art of Murder, which is actually about the the mystery slash detective slash noir genre. And it it also, he, he ends up perfectly describing his own goddamn character in it. <laughs> but he's also like incredibly sassy and um, takes down some of the people who have things to say that he disagrees with, re the detective novel. And it was written in the 40s or 50s, I believe. And it's still so weirdly prescient. And it could almost be about any novel. Um, and I will link to it in the show notes. I just, I really enjoy just this, this very fiercely protective of a genre, but also fiercely critical of it and just kind of over the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> with some incredible quotes where he, he said, like, um, I'm going to paraphrase here. Sorry for the complete failure. Really wonderful and thought provoking books have been written on the subject of how to earn a living and to live nicely. And some very dull ones have been written about God. Like <laughs> mm. it's it's not so much um, the subject so much as the person um, writing it and what they have to give. One of the other things I think about in terms of feeding my creative brain, which tends to be more critical than anything else, like engaging my uh, engaging with my tools as a reader. Uh, and one of the things that I do for that and to learn more about it is to um, watch TV, <laughs> which sounds kind of odd, but I, I think... I think about ensembles and dialogue and how structure works in different mediums. I, I also think of plot in any medium as extremely cinematic. And I think about like, if it were a TV show, where would you put the commercial breaks and what kind of transitions would you use? And as, as an example of that, I will pull out the West Wing, which I really like, and it's kind of ubiquitous, but it's also the only Aaron Sorkin piece I can tolerate. I find him <laughs> generally intolerable um, and utterly obnoxious <laughs> he has that thing where <laughs> this is my major Sorkin issue and it's an issue I have with some other creators like Whedon um their voice is so overdeveloped and like a shtick that their characters have the same patter the same just over the top style of banter like I love the West Wing because it managed to do that um but the roles of the people were they were so important and charismatic that you bought it and it was well done but um the issue I have is like when that's taken to extreme, you have things like Buffy, which I disliked because they never sounded like high schoolers. They always sounded like puppets for Joss Whedon. 
<laughs> I was going to say, I actually, I was thinking about that recently because I really enjoy some of Joss Whedon's dialogue. And then in other things, I'm like, this just sounds like Joss Whedon doing his thing. It doesn't sound like a character. And I'm actually having that problem with the sequel to The Sparrow. I loved The Sparrow. I'm not super into the sequel for a variety of reasons, many of which are a white author and presumed straight cis author stepping in things she shouldn't. But also it feels like it feels like one of those cases where someone's first book did really, really well. And so they kind of got to do whatever they wanted. <laughs> and somebody should have been like, no one talks like that. <laughs> <laughs> Because it works really well in the first book. Like, the dialogue is not... It doesn't quite land like real people, but it also lands really close to that. It's, like, weird in the ways that people are weird. But the sequel feels weird in the way that an author trying to be clever is weird. I try to think about writing dialogue as if I'm writing a screenplay, and it has to be dynamic. Because it not only has to look um, pleasing to the eye in prose form, narrative form. It also uh, has to do a couple things at once. It has to look like people might say it. <laughs> um, it and it also has to be as brief as possible. It, it actually, um, it should sound like something someone would say, but no one would actually say it with such brevity. It's mm -hmm. concise. It's a representative of the core issues with some flavoring of characterization. So I think about shows like The West Wing because they have so many goddamn examples of what dialogue patterns can sound like and how to make things over the top and sometimes even esoteric, but still uh, understandable and likable. And I also watch a lot of stand-up comedy for similar reasons because because I like to see the stark contrast of how spoken rhythms can work in writing and also can't work in writing. Um, lots of jokes that land really well have a lot to do with delivery and simple verbal tics uh, mm -hmm. and repetition, very deliberate repetition that tends to sound way more natural when it's thrown off the cuff by someone charismatic than if you wrote it in Microsoft yeah. Word. <laughs> the least charismatic program there is. Yep. <laughs> I see that blinking cursor. Yeah, I, I that's one of the things that I do. And I realize that sounds kind of like boring or like I'm doing homework, but I really get jazzed by that sort of thing. I want to learn. Amanda's jazz. <laughs> jazz hands. <laughs> I want to learn more about um how <laughs> i can't wait for you to edit this and be mad about the noise i just made yeah it was i heard some sort of like snoofle <laughs> sort of whistle. a croak yeah <laughs> i was like what is this <laughs> i'm sorry carry on no it's okay i really enjoy some work that other people find tedious. like my favorite thing in the world is to do research and tasks that other people find annoying or time consuming or whatever i love research more than anything else. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I enjoy nonfiction so much. I'm actually reading, because I'm in school right now, um, I'm forced to read, I think, how many textbooks did I end up with for this semester? I think so 15. Many. Everything I'm reading right now is nonfiction. <laughs> so I keep <sighs> opening up Kindle and looking at, you know, I, I actually finally read KJ Charles' Jack Daw, and I'm actually, I'm reading a, a Ancillary Justice uh, the first book in that series right now. It's good. But everything next to me, like, 
Um, I have stuff about white missionaries, and then I have a child of Hitler. Literally everything within a, a 30 foot radius of me right now is depressing. <laughs> it's depressing. <laughs> but I really like doing this part. Um, I, I like learning stuff or augmenting knowledge or categorize. I really like categorizing things, which is why a lot of the stuff on structure in writing can be a little bit, it can look a little deal dear to me. So that's why I tend to look at like screen screenplay structure because it's mm. way more um decisive in terms of acts it's like no you have to delineate this <laughs> it's interesting I'm, I'm looking at my favorite stuff and the only pieces of nonfiction on this are a movable feast by ernest hemingway which is arguably fiction because he lied constantly about everything um, so it's sort of like his account of his life. And, uh, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth by Reza Aslan, which is so good. And if you've read it, you know, has, like, it opens, I think, with a segment that is almost prose. It's almost like historical fiction prose. He has a really lush writing style, particularly for a, a nonfiction writer. And I realize that I, I'm interested in inspiration from nonfiction sources, but it's not what inspires me to write. I'm interested in it in sort of a, a like an intellectual level of like, I want to know stuff, but it doesn't inspire me creatively. The building blocks of prose are what inspires me creatively. Yeah, you like to, you really, I see, I see you tackle writing lines of prose like someone literally playing with building blocks like it's very yeah. it's got that bird's eye view of it where you're like okay this sentence works by itself but does it work with these others and how do I build on them and what do I want that to look like yeah I really really enjoy prose mechanics I'm right now editing a novella that comes out on October 25th called Caroline's Heart. But anyway, um, I previously released this novella as part of the uh, Magic and Mayhem anthology, which was to benefit our favorite convention, Gay Romance Northwest, now known as Read with Pride. So this is a rare opportunity for me to take something that I already published and edit it, which is really, really fun for me because I, I like the original, but I wrote it about a year and a half ago. And in the meantime, like I've had like an accelerated period of growth because I've done more writing and more serious writing in this period than in most of the rest of my life. So there's a lot that I've improved, and there's a lot that just when you come back to something that you're no longer close to is easy to pick out. I spent probably, I don't know, two hours yesterday just rewriting the first page and just focusing on the flow of information between like a couple paragraphs. And that shit is my catnip going back. And it's just like a puzzle piece of being like, what can I move here? How can I make this information just really easily digestible? Because that's something that I'm really big on. No matter how extra I want to be in my prose, I want it to be super, super readable. So a lot of how I try to compensate for wanting to have a more lush style is by making sure that my logistics are like crystal clear. <laughs> like this is the way the information flows down the page. It's just so fun. It's especially fun because there's always a puzzle to unravel because I realize the thing that I do with parenthetical statements constantly I also do in prose constantly. So I'll have a paragraph that has like a subject line that any college class would tell you should be the subject of the paragraph. And then I have a paragraph that's about something else completely. And then the last line of the paragraph will be about that first thing. And then I'll do that. And every paragraph is like a little 
little present for me to unwrap later and go, why the fuck did you do that? What's been your biggest what the fuck at your original version of, of Caroline's Heart? Um, the first page. Just because <laughs> there's a bunch of shit in that first page that doesn't need to be confusing and is. It doesn't need to be expressed a certain way. I'm sure that it was the best I could do at the time, but it's easy to come back and be like, why? The absolute worst what the fuck moment I had, though, was yesterday. I was rereading um, a book that I wrote part of and will probably never finish a couple years ago because I want to take a portion of it and release it as like a, just a fun little Halloween extra. And it is a soccer romance I may have talked about it on here before. It's one of my sort of like long-standing works in progress that I hate writing contemporary, so we'll see if anything ever happens there. But I found the worst parenthetical statement I have ever written in my life, which was a character dis expressing that he is calm-ish, but there was a fucking parenthetical statement between calm and hyphen-ish. Oh, Buh. To clarify in what way he was calm-ish. I know, I know. Oh my did. god, I was so angry. <laughs> Goes back in time, slaps the. I was gonna say slaps the pen out of young Austin's hand, but it would be slaps the keyboard away. Yep, breaks the computer. Sitting there, I mean, to be fair, it was NaNoWriMo, so there's a good chance that I was purely doing it to mess with myself later. <laughs> Again, more presents to unwrap. Because there were also some really bad jokes in it that I'm 99% sure were there because I giggled at them at the time and thought, later I'll hate this. <laughs> I love it. You're a little trickster. One time in one of my old NaNoWriMo manuscripts, I found the same bad sex joke three different times. <laughs> what was like, it? I, I don't even remember. It was not funny. <laughs> the first time I'm like yeah that doesn't really land and then like 30 pages later it's like, in there again and I was like I hate you it's like um it's like if if someone gives you an ugly piece of art and you just keep trying to move it from <laughs> yeah. room to room like does it look better here no no it won't it looks great in the garbage can I sold I threw out so many old manuscripts when I moved because for some goddamn reason I printed them out I had hard copies of manuscripts that I have in digital format of my nano novels from when I was like, I forgot how time works, 13. 13 is how old. Why? Did I think I was going to want to read that again? <laughs> well, that's the thing is like, you know, you print it out at the time or whenever it was that you printed them out because looking at something <sighs> in paper is different and interesting and physical and tangible. I understand why, why young Austin made this stupid choice and wasted a lot of ink and paper. <laughs> So much. I'm sorry, Earth. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mother Earth. <laughs> yeah, you better apologize. I'm trying to think. Uh, I didn't print a ton out because I was always concerned about wasting paper and ink. But what I did was usually... Some of us were environmentally conscious. <laughs> no, I, I didn't care about hurting the environment. I care that my mom would have to buy a new ink cartridge and they're fucking expensive. The only things that I remember printing out were stuff that I shouldn't have. Like I was beta reading my own porn or something. Um, <laughs> I should wow classic <laughs> like fan fiction or whatever or whatever or you whatever know what it <laughs> whatever else was going on and so i would print it out and like look over it and sort of check things off and you know make notes and edit it and then i just left them in my room just for whatever oh. <laughs> fucking grandma comes in here and sees like 
I don't know. I was going to say, like, my grandma wouldn't snoop. And I was like, yes, she would. She did. She probably <laughs> found some of that shit. And I hope it's Scarter. Uh... <laughs> Fuck you, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the title of the episode, just so there's no ambiguity. Fuck you, Grandma. I was trying to think of two. I only have two other actual uh, like book examples on my list. But um, in terms of fiction, I really my two favorites that I keep coming back to, aside from the stuff that is my favorite, despite me not really recommending it to anyone. Um, the two favorites that I keep coming back to are uh, Margaret Mahi's The Changeover, which is a... Um, a YA novel from ages and ages ago, I think uh, the 80s, uh, maybe even the 70s, uh, set in New Zealand. And they're actually, they made a movie of it and it will be coming out probably this year. So I'm excited to see it because I love that book. It, every time I read it, I just get so just enraptured by magical uh, transformation stories and YA and like spooky stuff. Oh, every part. And then, oh God, the fucking, I was like, what do I call him? The love interest in that book. Sorry. Sorensen is so fucking great. I love him. He is, he is this perfect example of, he's this traumatized weird witch boy who's kind mm. of a shithead and reads romance novels to try and understand like human love and doesn't get it. I love Sorry. Um, and then the other one is uh, Robin McKinley's Sunshine because it reminds me that I do actually like vampire novels and I don't always hate first person narratives. It's so good. I still remember the first line of that novel is uh, it was a dumb thing to do, but it wasn't that dumb. Ugh, I want a sequel. She'll never fucking write one. There's literally I have an unfortunate <laughs> news and that's that it started raining in the yurt. Oh, no. And it's going to be loud. So I, I now have a rain track. That's fine. I can either just get rid of it or that's our announcement guys rain it's like i can i can see it on my <laughs> audio that's how loud the rain is already it's a nice background track i don't i'm not stopping <laughs> it's asmr <laughs> practically probably for someone yes there there's asmr rain is a trigger so sorry carry on oh, <laughs> i was talking about robin mckinley sunshine i'm so fucking mad at her she'll never write a sequel there's literally a section on her website in the faq that's like will you ever write a sequel to sunshine and the long <laughs> answer is no nope uh, <laughs> old um, well, she said, like, I have no plans to and I have 80 other thousand things to write, but maybe one day, um, you know, maybe I'll get the urge. I'll do it. And every time authors say that, I know they're lying. Yeah, <laughs> that's a years. stop asking me about it, yeah, which is legit. I'll that's, let you know if I'm inspired. That's her. That's her prerogative. And it's one of those things where maybe I wouldn't like a sequel as much because it was good enough on its own. But I'm also like, you set it up for a fucking sequel. You, this was the origin book. Of Ray understanding her gifts, and also, ugh, I love, uh, I love the vampire in that book. He's very strange. Ugh, it's such a good fucking book, and it's got kind of romance in it. But I don't know. I would not describe that book as a romance. I'm trying to think. Oh, this is where we differ too. Like one of the reasons I like to go to movies in movie theaters a lot. I haven't actually been doing it that much, but I'll go and sometimes I'll see like two in a day in a night. Actually, I like nighttime shows. Because um, they're usually way less busy and um, sometimes you'll be the only one in the theater. And when you get out, it's like completely silent and not sunny, which is one of the things that I hate about leaving movie theaters is like I walk into the <laughs> fucking sunshine and there's human beings. No, let's be real, Amanda. Sunshine is one of the things you hate about just sort of 
everything. I like sunshine on like a 70 degree day. No, a 65 or 60 degree day. <laughs> and it's just out there being beautiful and like with a touch of warmth. Perfect. Any other sunshine? Fuck that shit. I'm out. It's a fucking mean orb that hates me in particular and makes me want to overheat and get sick and I sunburn and no, I'm heat sensitive. <laughs> I would, never would have noticed. Summers are truly... Uh, we live in Washington where fucking if you're if you know someone with ac in their dwelling they're fucking rich because that is part of the problem with here is that if it does get hot we're totally unprepared for it there's no i mean people a lot of people are native so they didn't like grow up with heat like a lot of other places do in very hot summers that stay hot and uh yeah so there's just a whole bunch of fucking people without ac in poorly insulated dwellings just dying and that was me every well it was worse in in oregon and then before that washington or before that california i hate heat oh so i like going to movies and being as enveloped by them as possible i like to feel like i'm jonah in the whale i want the the auditorium around me and I can't really, I don't turn my brain off very easily. Um, so if I can get overstimulated by movies, that's close. <laughs> <laughs> it's as close as it'll get. Have I seen a film in theaters since I Alien you, Covenant? I took you to Rogue One. Oh, thank God. Yes. Okay. I didn't want that to have been my last cinematic experience since that was one of the worst films I've ever Wait, seen. W- did I take you to Rogue One before or after? I think it was before. Uh, oh, fuck. I think it was Alien Covenant, son. Oh, we can make fun of that fucking. Oh, no, we can't because people will see it and they don't want spoilers. Yeah, don't watch it. Don't don't even watch the film. Guess what? It doesn't deserve your money. Our 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 mutual friend, James, James Locale texted mm-hmm. me the other day and I forgot to text them back because I'm a jerk. Um, Where is it? I know you're in here, Jay. Series of texts scrolls up through all of my screaming about eyewitness. I watched Alien Covenant on my flight home and I am obsessed. Question mark, question mark, question mark. James. Listen, do you remember when I got home and I was like, I love these three things in particular. I promise you with everything I own that James likes it for the same fucking reason. Yeah, no, that actually that makes actually just said obsessed with. That actually does. No, I can see that. I can see the appeal. I spent the next like two days complaining about that film I, and then this particular tone you have when you're incredulous and cracking up and just like what and it's it's every time you talked about alien covenant it was called daria trying to just talk about something else and wound up detailing. complaining for literally two hours and detailing every aspect of the film that i didn't like. and then i saw the movie with cora and came and back. i did it again and you did we had the same keezy joined in we had a big group meeting <laughs> about uh alien covenant and um our various feelings on it i enjoyed parts of that movie it was not good i enjoyed um towards the beginning there's some nice scenery (laughs) that was it did you enjoy the little xenomorph nope i loved it actually i also cora and i are broken we kept cooing at the xeno well i at least did i think she joined me and then at one there's some there's a point in that movie wherein something very strange and funny happens and cora and i could feel it coming like a goddamn um like the phil collins song we could feel it coming in the air tonight and we just looked at each other and sunk down in our seats and it kept happening like it's a long scene austin you know what i'm talking about oh i know what you're talking about <laughs> it just keeps the part of the robots fucking play flute <laughs> forever <laughs> Fuck. 
it's real weird it's real good and i'm just like sitting there like and core is going and no one in the fucking theater is reacting no one laughs no one's hunkered down in their chairs wheezing like gremlins like core and i were listen they were taking it very seriously as the work of art that it is <laughs> they were viewing it and not making judgments which is important with that movie uh-huh. um but yeah it's very critical <laughs> it's just the, the flute scene and i couldn't believe it was happening like my brain was yeah. a half a second behind and like no 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 this is just you're a hallucinating nope it happened and then more things happened in that movie that were fucking inexplicable and i cried again and no one else reacted except for cora cora understood i did actually have a really fun experience of seeing the film because the only reason that i was persuaded to see this movie because i don't really watch horror movies i get stressed out in unpleasant ways most of the time um i can play horror games but not watch horror movies i went i was persuaded to go see it because i was at um Van Caff, which is a convention in Vancouver, uh, Canada, with some friends. And we went out to a nerd bar and they were having an Alien Covenant like sponsored special. The, the Xenomorph Bowl, which was literally a gigantic Xenomorph head with um, fog rising out of it, dry ice rising out of it, and also uh, flashing lights inside of it. And it was this giant bowl of extremely alcoholic punch. And so we all just drank from the Xenomorph head. And by the way, my table mates ordered this after we had already had drinks. Oh. So this was like our finale was to just (laughs) all share this giant horrifying bowl of punch. And then they're like, let's go to see Alien Covenant. And I could not say no at that point. Yeah, this is what we're doing. I was drunk enough to not be remotely upset by aspects of the movie that might otherwise have upset me, like... It was beyond my gore tolerance for one thing, but I was drunk enough that I just didn't care about the social awkwardness of like covering my eyes every time something happened that I didn't like or and covering my ears when I didn't like to hear things. <laughs> I was just like, I don't care. I'm not enjoying it right now. I'll wait. <laughs> I'll wait. Oh, fuck. That's amazing. It was actually quite a good time. And then I got to complain about it forever. So yeah, all in all, I feel like I feel like it's giving you enough like post facto uh, entertainment. Well, and it also like I have to admit, I I don't think it's a good movie, but it also specifically bothered me in ways that made me realize why I like different things and narratives and don't like other things, which back to the, you know, machines who run on spite uh thing i realized from that that i cannot tolerate particularly horror where you are encouraged to want the cast to die because they make bad decisions it is like my probably number one fictional turnoff barring like specific isms and shit like that and i had never been able to put my finger on it before my Probably most major issue with the film was that I felt like it had no respect for most of the people in it. Yep. They they acted in ways that were incredibly ill-advised in ways like that Like every no character in that film... would. Yeah, would every character in that film brings their death upon themselves. Horribly. Which is... Is callous, but like to an unbelievable extent. Um, it isn't like Final Destination where you're like, I don't care about these people. They're dying in weird, you know, weird faded ways. And in this, it's just like, no, that was your own fault. You like, can't why would you do fate. that? Come on. <laughs> and it's weird because like at the scientists. very beginning of the film, a scientist 
goes down onto an alien planet. They're all like, seems fine. Let's take our masks off. My brain wants to go, well, maybe they had environmental sensors. Yeah, but they don't know that there's not like weird alien poison that they're breathing in their lungs, spores. And then I'm just, I'm going to spoil this, this first terrible aspect of the film because this is literally in like the first, I want to say 15 minutes. Not only do they do this, but then they're like, we should test the water to make sure it's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but while testing the water to make sure it's safe, they go and like step on a bunch of alien fungi and breathe the fumes in. Uh, like, and they're not even really in like so hazmat suits. They're in like no protective. They're they're, but they're literally just going around breathing, being like, "We should check the water to see if it's safe." I'm like, "What about the air?" Couldn't I, especially you know knowing the air in your lungs. There could be organisms on that planet that you guys can't detect, and you're just like pops off the helmet. Oh, it's beautiful here. It's all right. <laughs> And it's not like they could have made it like a, you know, they're in dire need or something. Like maybe they weren't prepared to land on a planet, but it's their only choice. But they don't. Yeah, and they're it's out totally of voluntary. Everything is just a terrible decision that they make. Yeah, they choose every single thing along the way. And meanwhile, I am the only part. Oh God, I liked the people in that almost as a as a form of self-protection. <laughs> they were so foolish. Oh, they were just obnoxiously written. See, that's the thing is like, I would rather you do something different and then have to make everyone make completely uh, irrational. I, as a layperson, know that you shouldn't do that. And you're like, but let's uh-huh. move the ship closer. <laughs> that one was really bad. Danny McBride, why? <laughs> <laughs> Which brings me to... <laughs> what it made me realize about The Sparrow, which I read recently. And The Sparrow was pitched to me by a friend of ours as a book that was really, really good and life-changing, but also so upsetting that she would never read it again, mm-hmm. um, which is apparently a thing that makes me Yeah, your eyes book. lit up. My eyes lit up, and I was like, really? Tell me more. Um, and The Sparrow is about a, a group of mostly Jesuit, more or less missionaries who, by providence so to speak, are among the first to find to make contact with an extraterrestrial form of life in Alpha Centauri and lead a mission to go and make first contact. You, the, the premise of the book that is like at the very beginning and on the back cover is that they, they're all dead, um, except for one survivor, and it went very horribly wrong. The one survivor is severely physically and mentally traumatized, and the book is this very slow... It's like a slow burn romance, except the slow burn is to unbelievable horror and disaster. (laughs) The whole book is just the story of how this group of people met, decided to go on this mission, like became friends, became a found family, fall in love, you know, how they form bonds in increasingly dire circumstances. And it's told both through a semi-omnipotent POV um, that gets all of their perspectives and the the perspective of the one survivor. It's a, it's a thing where they make a lot of mistakes um, in similar ways, I would argue, to uh, Alien Covenant. Um, they make some critical errors um, and then are also unlucky in certain ways, um, and there's all kinds of twists and turns, but the book is about the tragedy of that. The book loves every character in it. Two of the characters in it are based on the author and her husband. So you spend like 99% of the book just 
enmeshing yourself in the relationships that these people have formed and the hope that they have and the values they bring with them. And it hurts so much. And that's what I need from a story where, where like tragedy is going to happen is a sense that the people involved matter, even if they fuck up. Yeah. The Sparrow is also just really, really interesting and not without, I have criticisms of it, particularly because it is a book by a white person who decided to explore the idea of first contact uh, via aliens. And it definitely has some of the weird, like the colonialist legacy of sci-fi, Yeah, um, especially because it's ultimately kind of a horror novel. It's at least conscious of that and I think does some different things, but I still... I have reservations that get progressively stronger in the second book. One of the things that is really interesting about it to me is that it is about it is a book about faith because they're these characters believe they're on a holy mission. And it's very much about the reckoning, their initial reckoning with this idea of making first contact and going to meet God's other children out in the universe and also with the survivors reckoning of what has happened to him. And it's a book all about people's belief in God that doesn't attempt to offer an answer as to whether or not God exists. And that is just entirely centered around, you know, if we experience faith, how do we experience faith? And how do we reconcile these things and such and such? It's so good. It's it's just, it's one of those books that makes you cry the hardest at things that are the happiest. Yep. You know, because it's, because it's 99% a very happy book where not 99%, let's say, 70 30 <laughs> it's mostly happy <laughs> um but and and the moments of joy are very real like it gives you real moments to celebrate and root for what's going on even when you have the framing that everything is going to go horribly wrong you've been upset about anyways this book and now the sequel for I have been weeks. upset about this book for weeks. Um, <laughs> it's it's really interesting for me also because I'm not usually into modes of character writing that try to be realistic. I'm, I'm very much into archetypes and I'm into characters who feel like characters, not real people. Yeah. And I found myself relating to the characters in this book like they were at, at most like historical figures, but maybe even people I knew and relating to and worrying about them in more that way. It was a very different experience for me to actually enjoy that book. <laughs> I'm I'm really not sure how the author pulled it off, but I'm glad she did because I've been super inspired by it ever since. <laughs> Consumed you. I, ta I talked a little bit about this in our group chat, but do you want to hear about what's been consuming me? <laughs> You're supposed to answer tell me. The people, okay. <laughs> tell, tell the people what's wrong with you, Amanda. That's every episode of the show is what I do. True. I tell people what's wrong with me. T two things. Uh, first, I think I started watching this as protection against the fact that Lee Jong-suk's new drama is now airing and I can't afford to be eaten alive by it. Unfortunately, in that self-defense attempt, I started watching this show called Eyewitness. Um, it only had one season. It was on USA last year. And I had heard about it and seen a couple people mention it, but it, it got very low ratings. And I was never really quite clear on exactly how good it was or what the hell was up. I knew there was some gay in it, but I didn't know what for me to watch an entire s season of something that got canceled. I'm not going to like, <laughs> oh, yeah, got to rush over there and do that. <laughs> but then I did because I saw a review of it or a mention of something and they were they were talking about how it's basically um, about these two 
uh, teens and their trauma in witnessing a murder and um, one of them deeply trying to hide their closeted relationship, burgeoning relationship. And I was like, oh, I didn't know it, it was that like central. So I, I bought the first season and I started watching it and I was like, oh, no, this is all right. The first first two episodes are pretty clunky. I would even say three. I was like, I don't love this. I am interested. Some of these things are a little much to ask me to buy, but fine. And then by episode like six, I was fully in agony and torment flopping around. I'm still in agony and torment. I'm tormenting Macy, who is right now in Utah for a wedding. <laughs> I've, I start. I made her start watching it with me, and then I finished yes. it in a night. Uh, oh, you! And she's just like, "Do you want to watch episode three with me?" And I'm like, "Yes, I would." <laughs> again, uh, <laughs> round and around again. I watched the first two. I had seen already one of the episodes before I started watching it with Macy. I watched the first two, and then was like, "I'll just put the third one on while I do stuff before I go to bed." <laughs> so I will give uh, vague content warnings for this show in case anybody hears one of these and goes, "Oh, I don't need to check this out." Um, there's obviously violence. There's internalized homophobia. There's uh, violence between the two characters. One of them like pushes and punches the other one at school because of internalized homophobia. Um, more murder, drugs, <laughs> um, trauma, PTSD, rape, uh, not on screen as far as I know. Nope, there is statutory rape on, on screen. So yeah, these are all things that may preclude a vast portion of our listenership from watching it. It's real good though. And um, I actually don't mind dark TV so long as it isn't just perpetual episodes of CSI, which feels like a, a murder factory. <laughs> This I actually quite liked, and it has really complex character of color in as one of the like B cast. And it's about it. One of the cool things that I like about it, um, because you have these two teenagers that witnessed this murder, Lucas and Philip, in this strange burgeoning relationship with their own problems. One of them is a foster kid, uh, trying to figure out what the fuck to do in this new town with his foster family. The other one is closeted and clearly has a weird relationship with his father, re-masculinity. And what I really liked is that the main adult character is um, Helen is a sheriff, a former, I think, cop from somewhere in NYC. She's very, very, very married to her job. She can't, she's like doing her best to foster parent and listening to audiobooks about foster parenting, but she keeps oh. failing almost everything. <laughs> she's just like trying to help in an emotional crisis and prove that she's reliable. And then she's like, let me take this call from work and then leave. And her husband... <laughs> Her husband is this very kindly, like, just soft man uh, who's a vet. He's a veterinarian, and um, <laughs> it's so interesting, the first couple of episodes, how clearly they, they're trying to flip the cliche of, like, the, the cop married to his work and his, like, understanding, loving wife, um, and it's flipped. They have this, like, trying her best but very awkward and carrying around some trauma married to her fucking job bad foster mom just because she doesn't know how to connect to another human being and then the, the dad the foster dad is just like let's have long talks and I'll squeeze your shoulder and I'll take care of everything and I'll order food and da 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 I don't know I really like that part of it it's just it's good the the boys the boys 
Their relationship is really interesting. I've rarely seen um, teenage uh, gay characters seem like teenagers, uh, realistic teenagers, not like super heightened ones. And then they have a, a like their their kissing and in- intimate scenes are like also realistic. I don't know. They they never struck me as super rehearsed. I really like that about it. it, it it's a really personal story about two dudes trying to figure their relationship out in a huge traumatic broad context and also a woman trying to figure out how to be a parent and also how to kick ass at her job she's real good nothing gets past her that's what i really like about it too she's super hyper competent to the point where like Like it's it's a conflict like it's a conflict in her you know day-to-day life she's a little obsessive about it she has a history of bad things (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I recommend it to people who can stomach uh, a crime show with some of the more unsavory things. Um, There may be more that I forgot, so definitely maybe look into it. So, Amanda, how would you say that feeds your creative brain? It makes me want to write a YA novel about gay, (laughs) uh, not gay, about lesbian teenagers. About gay. About gay. I mean, yes. (laughs) I want to write, like, lesbian teenagers being resourceful in the middle of something like maybe they witnessed a crime. Yeah, <laughs> it's not eyewitness. Yeah. <laughs> it's a uh, important passerby who saw a thing happen. Mm-hmm. That's a good title. It's, I can I like hear it. your voice. <laughs> <laughs> that one's definitely not taken. <laughs> nope. Anytime I watch something that makes me feel agony, I'm inspired. Like I need to be like, yeah. Ugh, and rolling around on the floor before it makes me want to do the same thing to other people. Yeah, I feel that. I am also often inspired by stuff that is hurtful. Just because I'm I'm inspired when strong emotions are evoked in me to be like, I want to do that to somebody else. That, I think, is... That's part of the reason why Lost Boy is on my favorites, although it also inspires me from a structure standpoint. Lost Boy is another trans Peter Pan <laughs> retelling. I was halfway through writing Peter Darling and someone was like, did you know that there's another queer trans Peter Pan book? And I was like, are you kidding? Are you serious? So I vowed to not read it. And I'm glad I didn't because it would have been, A, I think it would have been hard to psych myself up to write Peter Darling because I love Lost Boy. And B, I think it would have been hard not to be inspired by some of the characterization. Yeah, I was thinking Um, that. It would definitely have impacted your writing. Yeah, because it also has Hook Peter content, although you wouldn't necessarily know that from the summary. I really, really like the way that relationship is written, and it's also structurally interesting because it it's more of a straight-up retelling of Peter Pan. It takes the exact structure of Peter Pan and replicates it just with a very different cast on that story. It's about, it's not fantasy. It's about homeless youth and kink, queer and trans youth in a modern-day setting that is fantastical to them but not actually fantasy it's just really interesting to me to take to see so transparently because i've read uh i've also read uh jm barry's peter pan see two books with the exact same structure that have very different outcomes but also interestingly similar outcomes so that one was definitely really cool i remember after you read that you were finding more parallels that you hadn't realized yeah because well it's interesting because i had just written a peter pan book and and read jm barry's peter pan relatively recently for research and yet lost boy is written in such a way that it's still fresh and where i didn't catch a lot of stuff that was going to be a one-to-one parallel 
it's literally like, I think it's chapter by chapter. I'm not positive about that, but I remember a bunch of the chapter, a bunch of the chapters like echoing stuff from J.M. Barry's in really interesting ways. And yet I still didn't see some shit coming, even though I know everything that happens. <laughs> really interesting. I also made you watch Hook because you hadn't seen it. Yeah, I also hadn't seen Hook. Really, the only, I think the only Peter Pan media I had consumed was uh, the 2003 or 2004 film with Jason Isaacs and the book. Had you not even seen the the really shitty uh, cartoon? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. <laughs> Try to forget. That awful, I didn't want... awful movie. The only good thing that gave us was the gif of the crocodile slapping the water. Yeah, I did keep getting a pirate's life for me stuck in my head but i tried to let that be the only influence that and i kept like you know the the like peter motif the da 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 i would just go around in my life while i was writing peter darling going da 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 it is such a good music cue Ugh. It's, it's, i hadn't yeah. thought about that in so long and when you said it i was like suddenly i recall i lit up it's a very good, very, very exact motif. The one, I think the one other thing that I realized as we were talking about this is that I'm not really inspired narratively by most TV shows, movies, even games for the most part, because they don't, they're not pros. Yeah, they, for me, they just don't really translate into stuff that inspires me to write specifically, maybe in general, but not for writing. But the only other form of media I know that does is live theater. Live theater really inspires me to write. And I think part of it is that I did live theater a lot when I was growing up. I was in improv for six years. I did a lot of improv. I did a lot of community theater. I did a lot of plays when I was growing up, uh, either where we just improvised it or we improvised and then wrote down and then improvised to iterate on it. Something like that, where we would take a script and then kind of like futz around with it. Be like, this could be funnier and stuff like that. I kind of feel like the the experience of acting through a scene and slowly learning, like realizing who the character is and getting more into it and building the characters outside and then bringing them into that and knowing what they're doing off screen and working on many different versions of the same scene that can come off very differently depending on how the character is emoting or not emoting or how they are imagining their sort of inner struggle feels way more similar to me to what I go through when I'm writing. My writing process, I think I described this a lot in the Peter Darling episode, is to go back over the same piece over and over and over again very quickly. Kind of just like the the last day or something that I was working on Peter Darling, I think I went through it, the, the entire book, like multiple times. Just kind of like running through, reading it at different paces, like... And the only thing I can really compare that to in other media is like the experience of rehearsing a play over and over and over and like doing it a little differently each time and making small adjustments maybe being like I've always hated this line can we just cut this line or like this doesn't land or like we need a longer pause here or something like that and when I get into my favorite stages of editing which is that last like I'm just chiseling away at like individual lines that's kind of how it feels like the thing is done the thing is there and now I'm just 
I'm just polishing it. I'm seeing how it runs every time. And the, the flow is really important to me and the, the movement from beginning to end is really important to me. And I only really get a sense of that by running through it over and over. There's a lot that I do that's kind of the minutia of tinkering with a paragraph, but a lot of it is just like from the top again, from the top again, how does this start and get to here is more important to me than what is that specific line and what are all the words in that line and then on the grand scale it'll be like and how does this scene land after all the other scenes how does this chapter that ends the book land after you've read the rest of the book three times today yeah my my style would not work for me if i didn't read extremely fast yeah i i feel like at one point we should sit down and read the same thing and see how long it takes both of us because i feel like we're pretty a race it's not a race it's just a natural measurement i you're going to have to trick me into doing that because otherwise it's a race. Well, the pro- if I say like, oh, I'm going to read this book, you should join me. You're going to like get distracted and go on your phone. But if I tell you that we're timing ourselves, maybe you won't get distracted. Then I'll race you. Then you'll race me <laughs> and then I'll quiz you on it. What happened? I want to win. <laughs> <laughs> we're both really, really fast, though. Um, I talked yeah. about it in the last episode, though. A lot of my fast reading. OK, it's not fast. I can read anything fast. It's that uh, I tend to want to finish things in like one go or one day. Um, I like no to matter how long they yep, are. Info dump all over my own head. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, So it usually takes like a pretty significant. One of the things that I do not like doing is picking up something, being interested in it and being excited to read it tomorrow fuck you i want it now pour it in my mind now so now see i'm all about delayed gratification maybe that's that's why i like slow burn in the way that i do because i'll inhale it in one sitting but i get to savor it while i'm inhaling that yeah that metaphor starts to fall apart a little little weird (laughs) i just have an image of you as kirby (laughs) sort of slowly inhaling (laughs) being like "Mm, tastes great Love that slow burn. Do I detect a note of pining? Uh, Kirby sucking something into his mouth, but just like a slow smile turning up the corners. No, it's like sipping oh, wine. <laughs> Spitting it back I don't think out. Ah, the rain has come again. Yeah, can hear the pitter-patter. I actually rebought this book that I, I read years ago. I, re- I bought the whole series, and I'm really excited to read it, but it's like I want to read the whole series. Yeah, it's the other reason I haven't started Johannes Cabal is because I'll want to read the three in a day. I did that with fucking Fifty Shades. I so anything, but I'm so different from that because I'm I do I will read it one a book in a sitting sometimes. Yeah. But I'll also I'm really attracted to reading things at specific times, like when I'm ready for them. When I was in the midst of moving out when I was reading The Sparrow, and I didn't feel like I could focus in the house, even though by all accounts reading would have been a good thing to do there. So I kept uh, I kept it for when I was on the bus, religiously wouldn't open it otherwise. <laughs> you have so much self-control. I either finish it or I put it down, read a page a month later and then go, I'll never finish this. It's not true though. <laughs> See, I read Jackdaw after at least a year. Thank God you finally read Jackdaw, finally which is so good. So good. I love it. Of course. I Thank did. God we didn't uh, forget to uh, talk about this KJ the third Charles. Time, this Austin, the third time. We also talked mm-hmm. about CS Paquette. Listen, I like other authors. They're just important. We talked about so many uh, authors that we liked this That's time. That's true. We did good. We didn't talk about very many queer romance authors. We'd be like, oh, 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 I remembered one of the things I was going to say. Um, so this one is more like historically what has influenced me and made me want to create. Frankly, I think it 
informed me as a human being on so many levels. But I've talked about before that I grew up reading romance novels, and I kind of wanted to put that in perspective of like what it meant, because I realized it's kind of funny. Um, I started reading romance novels when I was like eight or nine and not because anyone in my life thought that was cool, but because I was a sneaky sneak snake who would sneak and hoard. (laughs) I had a fucking collection. It was curated. Um, And I wasn't like when I was eight and nine and 10, I wasn't reading them for like smutty titillation. I was reading them for the emotional journey and catharsis legitimately. Every once in a while I'd read a sex scene, but I was just like, this is weird. I'm going to flip past it (laughs) until I got a little older than I was like, yeah, I guess this is what adults do. This is the naughty literature. (laughs) But I started uh, reading it when I was very, very young, when I probably should have only been shaped by Disney movies. And instead I'm sitting over there like, he thinks that she's a slut. I'm cutting that because it's the weirdest thing I've ever said. (laughs) That was a really good sort of whole intonation that you had there. Well, I don't I don't like saying that word, so occasionally I jokingly say it as slut. Slut. (laughs) So my mouth started to slut and then I turned it around at the end. A (laughs) sluot. It's like jail. Jail? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, essentially um i hoarded these goddamn romance novels i i had my favorites the other ones i would like recycle and put back in my because my my mom and my grandma borrowed a lot of books from people and my mom didn't particularly love romances so she would often leave them for my grandma and i would go and like every bag of books they had i would take one or two and then if i didn't like them i'd quietly put them back in the bag <laughs> So I'm sure my grandma thought it was either my mother or the other one who (laughs) was doing it. And I just the things that I read were so bad. 80s and 90s, mostly historical romance, where it's literally all of the worst misogynistic tropes, the, the dubcon tropes, the outright rape threat tropes, the just drama um and i remember uh unfortunately the one that had the strongest effect on me and believe me i read hundreds i read everything from amanda quick to sandra brown to julie garwood to name name somebody who is publishing i even read like two danielle Steele books they were both traumatizing uh not that sandra brown wasn't holy shit who let these people write these extremely upsetting books but the one that i remember the most to the point where i actually am going to try and find it on amazon and rebuy it as like a memento of my horrible childhood <laughs> preteen years is this book by christina sky called uh, the black rose and it's so fucking unreal and over the top and the plot twist just like left right jab you like they're incredible and I I still remember reading Dane's description of I think her name was Tess uh, and he literally was like, she has the face of an angel, but the body of a white chapel whore. Just, you know, the sort of shit that when you're nine, Amazing. you should be reading. In any event, um, yes. that novel has... It just explains a lot about Amanda Jean. It really does. Uh, that novel has um, oof, a past love that turned to hell misunderstandings hating someone for the misunderstanding being a secret smuggler being a secret pirate being (laughs) um running a oh god what awful thing oh um she had a huge fight with her ex that he hates her because he thinks that she's a sleut (laughs) i have to cut that it's it's too good and bad um he hates her and uh she gets i don't know in some sort of 
accident and she loses her sight for a while, you know, as happens. And she gets scooped up uh, by this pirate, I guess, or at least captain uh, named Andre, I think. He's, like, attracted to her and they have a thing, but she keeps, like, getting upset about her ex. And at one point she says her ex's name during sex. And the dude is just like, no, there's no room for me. And then at the very end, when she's getting off the pirate ship during an attack, I guess it's a pirate ship. Who knows? Her sight comes back and she's just, like, parted from this man that she's been falling in love with and getting over her ex with. And she's just like, no. And then you find out later... Guess who the pirate was? Guess who Andre was? It was it was Dane the whole time. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> it's so that's bad. not that's not good, Amanda. It's not good. But I read stuff like that, and I so I remember wholeheartedly enjoying it, even when I thought it was silly. I just thought it was so funny and brilliant that like. <laughs> The entire time she was like, I still have feelings for this man who hates me. And dude's like, he sounds like a dick. <laughs> it's you. The call is coming from inside the house. And he, you know, he obviously lied to her about it the whole time. Shit. She was. Although, also, I have to be honest. If I were blind and I were picked up on a pirate ship and a dude who sounded and acted suspiciously like you, but was suddenly named Andre. <laughs> asked me a lot of questions about austin chant yeah i would be suspicious i'd be like is that axe body spray (laughs) (laughs) how dare you slander me in this way you know i prefer old spice it's true (laughs) that book was a wild ride and at any time i remember that feeling of just being completely you know pearl clutching over these twists and turns many of which were incredibly gross Uh, I remember that, like, I can still do that. I can write, you know, a ridiculous romp and soap opera and um, I can take the gross things out of it and make it my own. So anytime I think about writing romance, I just think about how many fun, cool, over the top things I can do because everyone's here for an adventure. We're walking in the in the. In the heterosexual bodice ripper shadow of people who are like, and he was also a pirate. So like, you know, <laughs> he's the Lord Pirate Man. It is inspirational. Any Anything that you think is too much or too far, somebody out there did it with way more fanfare than you ever thought of. And they also probably someone was a pirate. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful. <laughs> Don't give me your platitudes again. <laughs> Anytime you try and come across like a loving, caring human being, you sound like a fucking robot trying to understand <laughs> affection. Perjury. Amanda, slander. you are important to me. <laughs> I care about you. I wish I had my recorder right now so that I could I can do what real robots do and play the flute. <laughs> the irony. So uh I once made a joke video where after I saw that movie I um made a video where during the flute I pasted in the shitty recorder version of my heart will go on. It's the best video there is. It's the best video that I've ever made. Forget you carnival carnival uh fan vid with like 10k views for some reason. You were made in Windows Movie Maker. <laughs> Nothing will ever top fluting. Nothing will ever top. 
gonna say Michael Fassbender, but I didn't want to say his name, and then the construction yeah. of that sentence went wiggly. Also, we've been recording well, for two hours, so we should shut the fuck yeah. up, or I'm gonna get real mad later. <laughs> yeah, you will. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Silas, for the prompt. That was a really fun prompt. Obviously, we rambled about it for hours. And as a reminder to everyone, our Patreon exists and our $10 Patreons get to request videos. I mean, what? <laughs> they get to request. Ask, we don't make videos. I mean, I keep our telling $10 you patrons to start an ASMR channel. Our $10 patrons uh, get to prompt. He didn't even uh, episodes dignify that with show. an answer. Did <laughs> But yes, if you if you pledge ten dollars uh, a month, we will do a. You can tell us to talk about whatever you want. If you want us to review, um, if you want us to review the new Miley Cyrus album, we will do that. If you, <laughs> if you want us Amanda. to shoot your computer problems, we will do that. Of all the examples you could have gone with, I was looking at my to do list of things that I should do, and one of them was finish listening to the shitty new Miley Cyrus album. Uh, it's not good. Some songs are, but. It's, it's no bangers, let's put it that way. But, yeah. Is anything bangers? An album that I unfortunately... Yes, anyway, let's move on. Don't be ashamed of it. I came in like a wrecking ball. <laughs> that song is great. Yeah, it is. I love it. You do, you do always feel like you're on a wrecking ball, like, yeah. getting ready to smash some shit. Anyway. But also, like, I'm super sexy on the wrecking yeah, ball. Yeah, and you're white. Anyway. If you'd like to continue anyway. the conversation on Twitter, <laughs> why, we don't know. <laughs> if you want to ask uh, Austin and Amanda to talk to you about your favorite subjects, um, please give us $10. You can even <laughs> PayPal it to us. We don't care. And if you would like to uh, continue the conversation on Twitter, as always, I'm at Austin Chanted. I am at Amanda H. Jean. And that's our show. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Daria DeFore and Amanda Jean, with art by Kesey Young and music by Carly Ann Warden. If you want to continue the conversation, follow us on Twitter at The HR Podcast, follow us on Facebook, check out our Patreon, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed.